0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to New Books in Anthropology. My name is Aliza Arjan. Today, I'm joined by Aaron Jackson, lecturer in Anthropology in Victoria University. We'll be talking about his book, Worlds of Care, The Emotional Lives of Fathers Caring for Children with Disabilities, published by the University of California Press in 2021. Thank you very much, Aaron, for joining us today.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Of course, it's my pleasure. Um, so often, you know, there's, I often follow a formula uh, in these episodes where I for, first ask my guests to tell us about themselves, then I ask how they arrived at their books. But your book reads as one where these questions are intimately entangled and it seems like much more than a book project. So could you introduce yourself and the book to us?
1: Yeah, so uh, my interest in my research is grounded in my life as a caregiver. Um, My son, Takoda, was born in 2011, and when he was four months old, he started having multiple seizures a day, um, grand mal seizures, so they were very frightening. We had no idea What we were doing or what was going on. Um, And so, very early on, he was diagnosed with global developmental delay and hypertonia, which is low muscle tone. And then later down the track with a severe uh, intellectual disability. So, naturally, you know, I was very interested in parents' experiences, caring for children with disabilities. I began uh, reading everything that I could on the subject. And the more I read, the more I realized that fathers were rarely the focus in the context of primary caregiving and even less so in the context of caring for children under these circumstances. So that was really the starting point for my research. I wanted to know how parents find a new kind of normal, um, I guess. Um, so on a personal level, uh, I was trying to find some perspective that would help me in my own path as a father. And, um, yeah, and so the book grew out of my uh, PhD dissertation and research I carried out in the States. Uh, it was published in April of this year with UC Press, and it's a part of the um, public series in anthropology, which is aimed at making scholarship accessible to wider reading publics beyond the discipline and to intervene in issues of, of public importance. And so the book tells a story about parents particularly fathers, and how they go about making sense of their lives in the context of intensive caregiving, specifically for children with severe cognitive and developmental disabilities. Um, And so obviously, yes, there's a very strong uh, autoethnographic component to the the work as a caregiver myself.
0: Yeah, that's very helpful to know. And you mentioned your focus on fatherhood. So I was wondering if you could tell us more about your approach to caregiving through fatherhood and masculinity. What is at stake in focusing on fathers?
1: Yeah, so my focus is on the effect caregiving has on the development of caring identities. Um, Caregiving is difficult. It can be very unglamorous uh, work. And I found that um, gender dominant conforming ideas about how men are supposed to act and what they're supposed to do can really aggravate the difficulty um, for men. So men are supposed to be dominant. They're supposed to be in control. They're supposed to um, avoid emotional vulnerability. And for the men that I came to know, fears over being seen as vulnerable or judged as emotionally weak often posed the greatest challenges at least in the beginning of their journeys to being the fathers that their children and their families need them to be. And so, um, I found that, you know, through the practice of caregiving, um, this can really undermine their confidence in who they were and change the way they relate to themselves and others. Um, often making it impossible for them to continue acting in the same ways or continue holding the same values. And so, uh, one father I write about in the book, Earl, um, he spoke pointedly about how his uh, personal history of gendered experiences had ill prepared him for fatherhood in this context. Um, so early on after his son's diagnosis, he said he threw himself into taking care of the things that men do, um, namely Mm -hmm. Mm breadwinning, completely neglecting the practical hands-on aspects of caregiving, um essentially hiding from his grief over lost expectations by shutting down and and distancing himself emotionally from his family. But over time, the intimacy he established with his son began to press upon his identity as a father, and he began to discard certain gender values and norms that no longer felt livable under these circumstances and that had up until then offered a hiding place from, from feeling um, so he said his definition of success changed, uh, from being about, uh, winning, you know, uh, making money, uh, attaining status to it being about relationships with other people, helping other people flourish. And so he started a father support group to help men that were in his position. And, you know, he came to see that by helping others grow, he became more responsive to his own needs to grow. Um. You know, he said, Zachary doesn't, you know, need me more than any other dad. He just needs me in different ways. And we have to allow ourselves to grow into meeting those needs and being there for our children. And I think that applies to parents across the board. So by reframing masculinity and doing gender differently, um, by, you know, becoming engaged, empathetic, committed, and involved over the long haul. Um, responsible for themselves and for others and also in their attempt to create communities that are based on a recognition of our connection our being they establish grounds for creating a life of care and um, I think in doing that they contribute to cultural change and the slow process of refiguring uh, social practices that perpetuate social inequalities.
0: Mm-hmm, definitely and you show us really well how fathers just make and remake themselves Uh, and in your book self-making becomes a temporal orientation that is at the same time embodied and intersubjective as you just illustrated through um, the story of earl so can you speak to the temporalities of self-making and care
1: yeah. So I discussed this sense of, um, <clears throat> disorientation that parents experience upon entering their worlds of disability and becoming caregivers. Um, you know, this is partly from falling out of sync with the practices and activities of those around them. Uh, but there's also uh, a temporal dimension to this, that stems from the perceived mismatch between the past and present, the present that was supposed to lead somewhere else. And so this, um, This throws into relief all kinds of interesting things in terms of processes of of selfhood and identity. So there's some great research that um, identifies important events like the moment of a child's diagnosis or telling friends and family about a child's disability that uh, helps define the ways parents identify with a child's disability. But what I focus on is how these key moments are experienced as already mattering in particular ways according to one's uh, past experiences and future anticipations. And so Earl, um, who I was just speaking about, he grew up caring for his quadriplegic father. The strain mm-hmm. of that led to the dissolution of his family when he was a small boy. Um, and so this coloured Zachary's moment of diagnosis in a very particular way. You know, He was terrified. According to him, he'd lost his childhood to his father's accident and now here he was again um, in this position of, of caregiving. But, you know, the past also gives us opportunities for making new connections to the present and making new means. Um, so later on in life, Earl explained that his childhood, caring for his father, prepared him for his life as Zachary's caregiver and gave him perspective. So these temporal movements uh, backwards and forwards you know the whole possibilities for maintaining a sense of self-continuity across time. Um, Wayne another father in my book you know he felt a sense of comfort when his boys were diagnosed with autism because it was a moment of profound self-revelation uh, through light on his own past experiences of feeling different from others uh, which ended up leading to his own self-diagnosis of autism and a whole new way of understanding his past and present circumstances as a caregiver for his two boys. So the present can reshape the past with later connections, can colour it with new meanings. And so that these um, these temporal shiftings allow people to recreate an understanding of their life in accordance with the demands of the present and the future it anticipates. So, yeah, I found the interplay of these temporalities as vital to how parents go about creating a sense of continuity across time and after disruption.
0: Wow, and thinking through temporality in this way really illustrates how fathers settle into relational worlds of disability in your words. Um, So what do these forms of relationality and attunement tell us about care? Um,
1: They tell us that... Care is a way of interacting with others. Um, It's a way of situating um, oneself in the world. Um, You know, I see caregiving as something that exists in potential. Um, You know, it's grounded in the body's capacity for attunement and response. Uh, So it's a part of our social being. So, um, you know, our fundamental connection and the primacy of attuned empathy, which I write fair bit about our important aspects of of care. You know, care is familiar to all of us and it's something that we often take for granted because it's something that we need to survive and flourish. But the parents in my book, they really speak to the importance of our relationality at the heart of being and this profound sense that we become who we are in and through our relationships to other people. Um, And as Other care theorists have pointed out, care also consists of inquiry and action. Um, So we need to gain knowledge about the other in order to care for them. You know, we need to know who the person is, their um, strengths and limitations, their needs, so we're in a better position to respond to their needs. But this knowledge doesn't have to be propositional. It doesn't have to have propositional content. You know, we can sync up um, in ways that seem mysterious, which can... I believe, cut through our misperceptions and breed clearer imaginative possibilities for the way we relate to others we have no experience with. And I think parents intuit this, you know, quite strongly, which is why they often facilitate interactions between their children and others in order to break through the discomfort that people feel when they meet someone who doesn't meet their expectations on how one should look or act, um, you know, in order to allow their children to be felt. Um, to deepen the way people experience them, Um, both in their singularity and familiarity as well. There's one father I I write about in the book, Raul, and um, his daughter Mia is 13. She's nonverbal, very gregarious and sociable, and um, she loves heading with him into strip mall, Mm -hmm. places where there's lots of social activity. And if she feels like saying hello, she stretches her arm out of the wheelchair to greet you, and early on, early on in the piece, you know, Raoul found that um, people, you know, were often often felt uncomfortable and they would ignore her, and this made me a cry. And so he started um, anticipating this and, um, you know, telling the people of her intentions. And he said, in this way, people would often enter into a more intimate exchange with Mia. Um, and so, yeah, I talk about this how this is. Um, this is a, a public form of caring as well. You know, he's trying to change spaces of social belonging by deepening the way people experience his daughter. Um, yeah, and these forms of like public care are stitched into kind of everyday life.
0: Yeah, I found the public care aspect of your work really refreshing. And I want to learn more about that. But before... I'm also very curious about the moral aspect of this um, form of relation. How does intersubjectivity inform caregivers' moral attunements and agency?
1: So um, the parents in my book, they're engaged in the practice of day-to-day intensive caregiving. And they um, find out through the embodied forms of communication that I write about that there's you know more to our interactions and our intimacy with others than uh, language and cognitive sharing. You know, you know, if we're both holding the same things in our heads at the same time. So I think these new ways of uh, attuning to the world to take care of their kids ha- has the potential to retrain what they habitually attend and respond to in ways that um, open ethical possibilities for rethinking what it is to be a man what it is to be a father and to live a good life. And so personally, I found myself relating to spaces differently as Dakota's caregiver through being more other oriented. I developed a perspective that was um, more sensitive to our differences. I acquired a bunch of hands-on skills that were necessary for taking care of him. So I think all these things are significant in altering the way that caregivers are attuned to the situation and and, um, the ways they're drawn to respond in any given situation, which inevitably pervades our moral concerns and our moral identities, because it changes how we can act in the world. Um, how we're solicited to act. And so from this point of view, um, moral agency can be seen as a function of our habits of perception. And these changes can determine full-blooded courses of action, um, many parents underwent career changes and entered helping professions um, as care as of value became more central to their lives. So one father in the book, you know, he left his high-tech business and became a special education advocate, um, repurposing all the skills and knowledge that he had acquired over the years navigating the special education system for his daughter. Another father, a firefighter, shifted his attention to delivering Emergency preparedness workshops for those with disabilities and their families. So, you know, they, they know what to do in case of a fire or something. Um, another couple turn their attention to issues of diversity and inclusion and um, helping families who don't speak English as a first language, helping them access, um, you know, resources to help them in their lives as caregivers. So, yeah, I think these career changes speak strongly to this moral reorientation that arises from caregiving.
0: Absolutely. And I want to turn to how you wrote the book. So, you know, even as you discuss these stories, you're always, I mean, they're not stories, but you're always a part of um, these worlds that you describe. And in the book as well, you discuss your positionality as something that often shifted between your role as caregiver and researcher. So, what challenges did these shifts pose for you during the fieldwork and writing, and what did you learn from them?
1: Um, it did pose some challenges. <laughs> uh, being an insider, a, um, a fellow caregiver, you know, it was helpful in the sense that people I found were more willing to share their lives with me. You know, one father explicitly said that you know he wouldn't be sharing with me if I weren't a caregiver myself. So it was definitely valuable, I think, in terms of access. Um, yeah, so in that sense, you know, a lot of the time during field work, these identities coexisted quite peacefully. But sometimes my role as a re- researcher, yeah, could intrude in negative ways. At one point, things got really awkward with, um, with one participant early on um, when I had to more firmly anchor myself in my role as a researcher. And um, this had a bit of a cooling effect on the relationship, uh, which I talk about in the introduction of my book, actually. Um, yeah, but I think these identities can be particularly oppositional to one another at academic conferences and during Q and when you're required to talk theoretically about things like disability and personhood and your emotions get involved. Um, especially what, you know, when you're talking about your own child and Um, Also during writing up as well, you know, writing about people you've come to know really well and that maybe you have a lot of respect or admiration for as a caregiver and putting things down on paper that you know they'll read and that you might not ordinarily ever say to their face. So that's incredibly awkward as far as these relationships go, you know, post-field work. But um, I think what I learned is that my uh, own story and self-understanding um, as a caregiver, they're, they're inseparable from the picture that emerges from this research about how fathers create their worlds of care. You know, the discoveries and disclosures at the heart of my own experiences caregiving for Dakota provided insights that guided my um, observations and interpretations and, and what I came to learn during field work. So mostly inseparable, yeah. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, that comes across really clearly across the book. Um, And your approach to genre in this vein is really striking. So as a stakeholder in debates about disability and not only as a researcher, you use creative nonfiction as a communicative device. And I'm curious about what playing with genre in this way did for the book and for you. Um,
1: I liked that creative nonfiction gave me a degree of uh, flexibility and freedom while writing, while staying obviously true to the stories I was telling. Um, I liked that it um, allowed me to give the narrative a sense of immediacy between the reader and the story. But most importantly... The reason I chose creative nonfiction um, was because when it comes to the the population of of, um, people I'm writing about, those with severe disabilities that don't have language, um, as a caregiver myself, I thought it was the best medium for capturing the uh, delicate and intimate connections between carers and their children. And also those expressions of personality, attitude, mood, that convey what it means to be human. So that was the that was the biggest draw for me using creative nonfiction.
0: You also shared with us that journaling and keeping diaries have been parts of your writing process. Could you tell us more about the role of diary keeping again for you and for the book?
1: So, yeah, journaling uh, complemented my. Uh, fieldwork notes. I began very early on in the piece journaling my emotions and um, jokes and reactions to things. Um, and I think, you know, this kind of data, it's, it's useful in that it provides access for us to examine perhaps um, unconscious processes that I came to realize added a lot to my understanding of the, um, the psychocultural dimensions of my world. And also help me um, you know, better understand my fieldwork relations. So I could write down my own emotional reactions to a particular situation, which then helped me understand clearer my participants' reactions. And this helped me work through some of my thinking and reactions that were perhaps interfering with my empathetic communications with others. Um, and then, you know, and sometimes I could bring these. Uh, observations and these notes into conversation with intimate and trusted others and, and talk about them as well. So I think this kind of journaling, you know, my attunement to my own inner life allowed me to collect data that opened up avenues for more clearly understanding the relationship between um, culture and unconscious. Um, and this is important for my book, um, you know, especially since I spend so much time writing about the the pre-reflective habitual side to moral life—you um, know how the felt present situation is kind of a source for uh, a source of guidance in, in moral life. So yeah, it really helped with that the journaling.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and you know as you mentioned, the book is part of a public anthropology series, and you know we discussed a little bit how you handle the ethnographic writing, but your ability to write theoretically was also a part of the book that really stood out to me. For example, you handle like really hefty theoretical subjects like phenomenology, um, intersubjectivity, and you articulate these, um, you know, hefty theoretical points of view so clearly. So I'm curious about, you know, what was your approach to making theory accessible in the
1: book? Yeah. So that was, um, it was actually, a, a lot more dense, as you can imagine for, um, the dissertation of course, because you have to have all that theoretical scaffolding that, um, <laughs> I had to call for a book that was a part of a, a public series in anthropology. You know what I mean? So yeah, there was a lot of theoretical scaffolding that I called in the revision process, um, And I actually found that really helpful in terms of, um, you know, deepening my understanding of some of the subject matter too, if that makes sense. Not that I didn't understand it, but, you know, there's so much that you kind of take for granted Mm -hmm. um, and that your peers take for granted and and terminology we use. And I felt like by, um, you know, having to revise that for the book um, can really help. Um, deepen your understanding on the stuff that you're writing about and be clearer about it. And um, Mm -hmm. yeah, I've kept just the essential bits. Um, Yeah. I said there was a lot more of Martin Heidegger and stuff in the, (laughs) in its earlier iteration.
0: (laughs) I can imagine, but you know, hearing this, I'm sure will be very helpful to our readers who are uh, maybe transitioning from dissertation to book, like myself. <laughs> so it's very assuring to hear that you know getting rid of some of that is actually can actually be more helpful at times. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and everyone is um,
1: so yeah. helpful to in offering guidance with that. Yeah, that's great.
0: Yeah, um, I want to turn back to public caring. So you mentioned in our conversation that you know, the book um, is a form of public caring. And I'm curious about what kinds of public care work do you hope your book will do as it meets readers and goes out in the world?
1: Yeah, so my research is, you know, obviously it's very um, close to home and I see the book, yeah, I call it a, a public form of personal care, which is a term I borrow from day. Um, So, yeah, it's an effort on my end to socialise the world, to meet people like Dakota, um, you know, who have um, cognitive and developmental differences. I guess I hope it uh, inspires readers to think about disability in their own lives um, and how they interpret disability and act towards uh, others with disabilities. Um, You know, research doesn't have to be fortified with uh, policy suggestions. It can do a lot of good Um, still by reaching hearts and minds and so in terms of its public value Mm -hmm. I guess I hope it's useful um, useful for caregivers and the like but I also um, hope it helps people meet others more sensitively and to realise our profound connection
0: yeah I think the book is very well situated to do that work Um, as we close I want to ask what is next for you
1: So I'll continue um, at the moment teaching anthropology. Um, I'm currently also doing a master's in education. So we'll see what uh, avenues that opens up for me in the future.
0: Wow, that is very exciting. And we'll be looking forward to see uh, what happens in the future as well. (laughs) Thank you very much, Aaron, for joining us and for your insights.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: I'm Aliza Jan. This discussion of Worlds of Care, The Emotional Lives of Fathers Caring for Children with Disabilities, published by the University of California Press in 2021, is brought to you by the New Books Network, Anthropology. Thank you for listening.